Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I'm going to read from a book. The title of the book is The Man-Eaters of Tsavo and Other East African Adventures by John Henry Patterson. It was written in 1907 and details events of his that he experienced in present-day Kenya, building a bridge over the River Tsavo and his basically attempt to kill man-eating lions uh, the lions that he ended up killing were stuffed and sold to the Fields Museum in Chicago, where they are on display. Uh, it's a relatively short book, but John Henry pa- uh, John Henry Patterson was also had a pretty colorful life. He was known as the godfather of both the Israeli army, and he was the literal godfather of Benjamin Netanyahu's brother, Yoni, who was a commando who died on what's known as the raid on Entebbe, after Palestinian Palestinian militants hijacked a plane and flew it to Idi Amin's Uganda, and members of the Israeli special forces traveled down there to rescue them. He was the only person who died. Um, he was disinterred after he died in the United States and reburied in Jerusalem. He said he wanted to be buried amongst the forces that he led, and. Uh, At at a memorial ceremony about his life, Benjamin Netanyahu said the following, There is no exaggeration. Patterson was the commander of the first Jewish fighting force in nearly two millennia, and as such, he can be called the godfather of the Israeli army. Uh, There's a biography about Patterson by Dennis Bryan. The title is The Seven Lives of Colonel Patterson. And he was uh, born an Irishman. He was born in 1867 in Forge, Knee, Ireland. His mother was a Roman Catholic. His father was a Protestant. He uh, studied and graduated as an officer in the, mil- in the British Army, and with an emphasis on engineer, he was sent to uh, Kenya. Like I said, the Tsavo River, spelled T-S-A-V-O River in present-day Kenya, uh, during the colonial uh, competition with other imperialist forces, namely Germany, and this book will detail that. There may be some dated language. If I need to explain that, I will, but um, like I said, he had a very interesting life. He was uh, involved in the Boer War. He was friends with one of the founders of the Israeli state, Vladimir Jabotinsky, um, and uh, was head of what was known as the it was the Judean Fighting Force, I believe, is the title of that. It was known initially as the Jewish Legion, but it changed to the 38th Royal Fusiliers. The date of the reburial of Colonel Patterson in Israel was fairly recent, 2014. So again, the title of the book is The Man-Eaters of Tsavo and Other East African Adventures by Colonel John Henry Patterson. Preface. It is with the feelings of the greatest diffidence that I place the following pages before the public, but those of my friends who happen to have heard of my rather unique experiences in the wilds have so often urged me to write an account of my adventures that after much hesitation I at last determined to do so. I have no doubt that many of my readers, who have perhaps never been very far away from civilization, will be inclined to think that some of the incidents are exaggerated. 
I can only assure them that I have toned down the facts rather than otherwise, and I have endeavored to write a perfectly plain and straightforward account of things as they actually happened. It must be remembered that at the time these events occurred, the conditions prevailing in British East Africa were very different from what they are today. The railway, which has modernized the aspect of the place and brought civilization in its train, was then only in the process of construction, and the country through which it was being built was still its in its primitive savage state, as indeed, away from the railway, it still is. If this simple account of two years' work and play in the wilds should prove of any interest, or help even in a small way to call attention to the beautiful and valuable country which we possess on the equator, I shall feel more than compensated for the trouble I have taken in writing it. I am much indebted, indebted to the honor, Honorable Miss Cyril Ward, Sir Guilford Molesworth, Mr. T.J. Spooner, and Mr. C. Rawson for their kindness in allowing me to reproduce photographs taken by them. My warmest thanks are also due to that veteran pioneer of Africa, Mr. F.C. Sellis, for giving my little book so kindly an introduction to the public as is provided in the foreword, which has been good enough, which he has been good enough to write. John Henry Patterson, August 1907. Forward. It was some seven or eight years ago that I first read in the pages of the field newspaper a brief account written by Colonel J.H. Patterson, then an engineer engaged on the construction of the Uganda Railway of the Tsavo man-eating lions. My own long experience in African hunting told me at once that every word in this thrilling narrative was absolutely true, nay more. I knew that the author had told his story in a most modest manner, laying but little stress on the dangers he had run when sitting up at nights try, to try and compass the death of the terrible man-eaters, especially on that one occasion when whilst watching from a very light scaffolding, supported only by four rickety poles, he was himself stalked by one of the dread beasts. Fortunately, he did not lose his nerve and succeeded in shooting the lion, just when it was on the point of springing upon him. But had this lion approached him from behind, I think it would probably have added Colonel Patterson to its long list of victims, for in my own experience I have known of three instances of men having been pulled from trees or huts built on platforms at a greater height from the ground than the crazy structure on which Colonel Patterson was watching on that night of terrors. From the time of Herodotus until today, lion stories innumerable have been told and written. I have put some on record myself, but no lion story I have ever heard or read equals in its long-sustained and dramatic interest the story of the Savo man-eaters, as told by Colonel Patterson. A lion story is usually a tale of adventures, often very terrible and pathetic, which occupied but a few hours of one night. But the tale of the Savo man-eaters is an epic of terrible tragedies spread out over several months, and only at last brought to an end by the resource and determination of one man. It was some years after I read the first account published of the Savo man-eaters that I made the acquaintance of President Roosevelt, I told him all I remembered about it, and he was so deeply interested in the story, as he is in in all true stories of the nature and characteristics of wild animals, that he begged me to send him the short printed account as published in the field. This I did, and it was only in the last letter I received from him that, referring to this story, President Roosevelt wrote, I think that the incident of the Uganda man-eating lions, described in those two articles you sent me, is the most remarkable account of which we have any record. It is a great pity that it should not be preserved in permanent form. 
Well, I am now glad to think that it will be preserved in permanent form, and I venture to assure Colonel Patterson that President Roosevelt will be among the most interested readers of this book. It is probable that the chapters recounting the story of the Tsavo man-eating lions will be found more absorbing than the other portion of Colonel Patterson's book, but I think that most of his readers will agree with me that the whole volume is full of interest and information. The account given by Colonel Patterson of how he overcame all the difficulties which confronted him in building a strong and permanent railway bridge across the Savo River makes excellent reading, whilst the courage he displayed in attacking single-handed lions, rhinoceroses, and other dangerous animals was surpassed by the pluck, tact, and determination he showed in quelling the formidable mutiny which once broke out amongst his native Indian workers. Finally, let me say that I have spent the best part of two nights reading the proof sheets of Colonel Patterson's book, and I can assure him that the time passed like magic. My interest was held from the first page to the last, for I felt that every word I read was true. F.C. Sellis, Warplisden, Surrey, September 18th, 1907. Chapter 1, My Arrival at Savo. It was towards noon on March 1st, 1898, that I first found myself entering the narrow and somewhat dangerous harbor of Mombasa on the east coast of Africa. The town lies on an island of the same name, separated from the mainland only by a very narrow channel which forms the harbor, and as our vessel steamed slowly in, close under the quaint old Portuguese fortress built over 300 years ago, I was much struck with the strange beauty of the view which gradually opened out before me. Contrary to my anticipation, everything looked fresh and green, and an oriental glamour of enchantment seemed to hang over the island. The old town was bathed in brilliant sunshine, reflected itself lazily on the motionless sea. Its flat roofs and dazzlingly white walls peeped out dreamily between waving palms and lofty coconuts, huge baobabs and spreading mango trees, and the darker background of well-wooded hills and slopes on the mainland formed a very effective setting to a beautiful and, to me, unexpected picture. The harbor was plentifully sprinkled with Arab dhows, in which some, I believe, even at the present day, a few slaves are occasionally smuggled off to Persia and Arabia. It has always been a matter of great wonder to me how the navigators of little vessels find their way from port to port, as they do, without the aid of either compass or sextant, and how they manage to weather the terrible storms that at certain seasons of the year suddenly visit eastern seas. I remember once coming across a dhow becalmed in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and its crew making signals of distress, and our captain slowed down to investigate. There were four men on board, all nearly dead from thirst. They had been without drink of any kind for several days and had completely lost their bearings. After giving them some casks of water, we directed them to Muscat, the port they wished to make, and our vessel resumed its journey, leaving them still becalmed in the midst of that glassy sea. Whether they managed to reach their destination, I never knew. As our steamer made its way to its anchorage, the romantic surroundings of the harbor of Mombasa conjured up visions of stirring adventures of the past and recalled to my mind the many tales of reckless doings of pirates and slavers, which as a boy had been my delight to read. I remember that it was at this very place that in 1498 the great Vasco da Gama nearly lost his ship and life through the treachery of his Arab pilot, who plotted to wreck the vessel on the reef which bars more than half the entrance of the harbor. Luckily, this nefarious design was discovered in time, and the bold navigator promptly hanged the pilot, and would also have sacked the town but for the timely submission and apologies of the sultan. 
In the principal street of Mombasa, appropriately called Vasco da Gama Street, there still stands a curiously shaped pillar, which is said to have been erected by this great seaman in commemoration of his visit. Scarcely had the anchor been dropped when, as if by magic, our vessel was surrounded by a fleet of small boats and dugouts manned by crowds of shouting and gesticulating natives. After a short fight between some rival Swahili boatmen for my baggage and person, I found myself being vig vigorously rowed to the foot of the landing steps by the Baharin sailors who had been successful in the encounter. Now my obje object in coming out to East Africa at this time was to take up a position to which I had been appointed by the Foreign Office on the construction staff of the Uganda Railway. As soon as I landed, therefore, I inquired from one of the customs officials where the headquarters of the railway were to be found, and was told that they were at a place called Kindalini, some three miles away on the other side of the island. The best way to get there, I was further informed, was by Gari, which I found to be a small trolley, having two seats placed back to back under a little canopy and running on narrow rails, which are laid throughout the principal street of the town. Accordingly, I secured one of these vehicles, which are pushed by two strapping Swahili boys, and was soon flying down the track, which once outside the town lay for the most part through dense groves of mango, baobab, banana, and palm trees, and here and there brilliantly colored creepers hanging in luxuriant festoons from the branches. On arrival at Kindalini, I made my way to the railway offices and was informed that I should be stationed inland and should receive further instructions in the course of a day or two. Meanwhile, I pitched my tent under some shady palms near the Gari line and busied myself in exploring the island and procuring the stores and the outfit necessary for a lengthy sojourn upcountry. The town of Mombasa itself naturally occupied most of my attention. It is supposed to have been founded about A.D. 1000, but the discovery of ancient Egyptian idols and the coins of the early Persian and Chinese dynasties goes to show that it must at different ages have been settled by people of the very earliest civilizations. Coming to more modern times, it was held on and off from 1505 to 1729 by the Portuguese, a permanent memorial of whose occupation remains in the shape of the grim old fortress built about 1595. On the site, it is believed, of a still older stronghold. These enterprising sea rovers piously named it Jesus Fort, an inscription recording this is still to be seen over the main entrance. The Portuguese occupation of Mombasa was, however, not without its vicissitudes. From March 15, 1696, for example, the town was besieged for 33 consecutive months by a large fleet of Arab dhows, which completely surrounded the island. In spite of plague, treachery, and famine, the little garrison held out valiantly in Jesus Fort, to which they had been forced to retire until December 12, 1698, when the Arabs made a last determined attack and captured the citadel, putting the remnant of the defenders, both men and women, to the sword. It is pathetic to read that only two days later a large Portuguese fleet appeared off the harbor, bringing the long-looked-for reinforcements. After this, the Portuguese made several attempts to reconquer Mombasa, but were unsuccessful until 1728, when the town was stormed and captured by General Sampaio. The Arabs, however, returned the next year in overwhelming numbers and again drove the Portuguese out. And although the latter made one more attempt in 1769 to regain their supremacy, they did not succeed. The Arabs, as represented by the Sultan of Zanzibar, remained in nominal possession of Mombasa to the present day. 
But in 1887, Sayyid Bargash, the then Sultan of Zanzibar, gave for an annual rental a concession of his mainland territories to the British East Africa Association, which in 1888 was formed into the Imperial British East Africa Company. In 1895, the Foreign Office took over control of the company's possessions, and a protectorate was proclaimed, and ten years later, the administration of the country was transferred to the Colonial Office. The last serious fighting on the island took place so recently as 1895-96, when a Swahili chief named Mubarak bin Rashid, who had three times previously risen in rebellion against the Sultan of Zanzibar, attempted to defy the British and throw off their yoke. He was defeated on several occasions, however, and was finally forced to flee southwards into German territory. Although Mombasa has in the past well-deserved its native name of Kisiwa Mvita, or Isle of War, but under the settled rule now obtaining, it is rapidly becoming a thriving and prosperous town, and as the port of entry for Uganda, it does a large forwarding trade with the interior and has several excellent stores where almost anything from a needle to an anchor may readily be obtained. Kindalini is, as I have said, on the opposite side of the island, and its name, the place of deep waters, implies, has a much finer harbor than that possessed by Mombasa. The channel between the island and the mainland is here capable of giving commodious and safe anchorage to the very large vessels, and as the jetty is directly connected with the Uganda Railway, Kindalini is now really become the principal port, being always used by the liners and heavier vessels. I had spent nearly a week in Mombasa and was becoming very anxious to get my marching orders, when one morning I was delighted to receive an official letter instructing me to proceed to Tsavo, about 132 miles from the coast, and to take charge of the construction of the section of the line at that place, which had just then been reached by railhead. I accordingly started at daylight next morning in a special train with Mr. Anderson, the superintendent of works, and Mr. McCulloch, the principal medical officer and as the country was in every way new to me, I found the journey a most interesting one. The island of Mombasa is separated from the mainland by the Strait of Makupa, and the railway crosses this by a bridge about three-quarters of a mile long, called the Salisbury Bridge, in honor of the great minister for foreign affairs, under whose direction the Uganda railway scheme was undertaken. For 20 miles after reaching the mainland, our train wound steadily upwards through beautifully wooded, park-like country, and on looking back out of the carriage windows, we could every now and again obtain lovely views of Mombasa and Kindinlini, while beyond those the Indian Ocean sparkled in the glorious sunshine as far as the eye could see. The summit of the Rabai Hills having been reached, we entered the expanse of the Taru Desert, a wilderness covered with poor scrub and stunted trees, and carpeted in the dry season with a layer of fine red dust. This dust is of the most penetrating character, and it finds its way into everything in the carriage as the train passes along. From here onward, game is more or less plentiful, but the animals are very difficult to see owing to the thick undergrowth in which they hide themselves. We managed, however, to catch sight of a few from the carriage windows, and notice some of the natives, the Wa Nayika, or children of the wilderness. At Maungu, some 80 miles from the coast, we came to the end of this desert but almost the only difference to be noticed in the character of the country was that the color of the dust had changed. Our train sped onwards through the level uplands. We saw a fine ostrich striding along parallel with the line, as if having a race with us. Dr. McCulloch at once seized his rifle and by a lucky shot brought down the huge bird. The next and greater difficulty, however, was to secure the prize. 
For a time, the engine driver took notice, no notice of our signals and shouts, but at last we succeeded in attracting his attention, and the train was shunted back to where the ostrich had fallen. We found it to be an exceptionally fine specimen, and had to exert all our strength to drag it on board the train. Soon after this, we reached Voy, about 100 miles from the coast, and as this was the most important station on the line that we had yet come to, we made a short halt in order to inspect some construction work which was going on. On resuming our journey, we soon discovered that a pleasant change had occurred in the character of the landscape. From a place called Indi, the railway runs from some miles through a beautifully wooded country, which looked all the more inviting after the deadly monotony of the wilderness through which we had just passed. To the south of us could be seen the Indi range of mountains, the dwelling place of the Wa Taita people, while on our right rose the rigid brow of the Ndungu Escarpment, which stretches away western, westwards for scores of miles. Here our journey was slow, and every now and again we stopped to inspect the permanent works in progress, but eventually, towards dusk, we arrived at our destination, Savo. I slept that night in a little palm hut which had been built by some previous traveler, and which was fortunately unoccupied for the time being. It was rather broken down and dilapidated, not even possessing a door, and as I lay on my narrow camp bed, I could see the stars twinkling through the roof. I little knew then what adventures awaited me in this neighborhood, and if I had realized at that very time two savage brutes were prowling round, seeking whom they might devour, I hardly think I should have slept so peacefully in my rickety shelter. Next morning I was up betimes, eager to make acquaintance with my new surroundings. My first impression on coming out of my hut was that I was hemmed in on all sides by a dense growth of impenetrable jungle, and on scrambling to the top of a little hill close at hand, I found that the whole country, as far as I could see, was covered with low, stunted trees, thick undergrowth, and weighed a bit thorns. The only clearing, indeed, appeared to be the narrow track for the railway had been cut. The interminable Nyika, or wilderness of whitish and leafless dwarf trees, presented a ghastly and sun-stricken appearance, and here and there a ridge of dark red heat blistered rock jutted out above the jungle, and added by its rugged bareness to the dreariness of the picture. Away to the northeast stretched the unbroken line of the Ndungo Escarpment, while far off to the south I could just catch a glimpse of the snow-capped top of towering Kilimanjaro. The one redeeming feature of the neighborhood was the river from which Savo takes its name. This is a swiftly flowing stream, always cool and always running, the latter being an exceptional attribute in this part of East Africa, and the fringe of lofty green trees along its banks formed a welcome relief to the general monotony of the landscape. When I had thus obtained a rough idea of the neighborhood, I returned to my hut and began in earnest to make preparations for my stay in this out-of-the-way place. The stores were unpacked and my boys pitched my tent in a little clearing close to where I had slept the night before and not far from the main camp of the workmen. Railhead, Railhead had at this time just reached the western side of the river and some thousands of Indian coolies and other workmen were encamped there. As the line had to be pushed on with all speed, a diversion had been made and the river crossed by means of a temporary bridge. My principal work was to erect the permanent structure and to complete all the other works for a distance of 30 miles on each side of Tsavo. I accordingly made a survey of what had to be done and sent my requisition for labor, tools, and material to the headquarters in Kilindini. In a short time, workmen and supplies came pouring in, and the noise of hammers, sledges, drilling, and blasting echoed merrily through the district. Chapter 2, The First Appearance of the Man-Eaters Unfortunately, this happy state of affairs did not continue for long, 
and our work was soon interrupted in a rude and startling manner. Two most voracious and insatiable man-eating lions appeared upon the scene, and for over nine months waged an intermittent warfare against the railway and all those connected with it in the vicinity of Tsavo. This culminated in a perfect reign of terror in December 1898, when they actually succeeded in bringing the railway works to a complete standstill for about three weeks. At first, they were not always successful in their efforts to carry off a victim, but as time went on, they stopped at nothing and indeed braved any danger in order to obtain their favorite food. Their methods then became so uncanny and their man-stalking so well-timed and so certain of success that the workmen firmly believed that they were not real animals at all, but devils in lion shape. Many a time, the coolies solemnly assured me that it was absolutely useless to attempt to shoot them. They were quite convinced that the angry spirits of two departed native chefs, chiefs had taken this form in order to protest against the railway being made through their country and by stopping its progress to avenge the insult thus shown to them. I had only been a few days at Sava when I first heard that these brutes had been seen in the neighborhood. Shortly afterwards, one or two coolies mysteriously disappeared, and I was told that they had been carried off by night from their tents and devoured by lions. At the time, I did not credit this story and was more inclined to believe that the unfortunate men had been the victims of foul play at the hands of some of their comrades. They were, as it happened, very good workmen and had each saved a fair number of rupees, so I thought it quite likely that some scoundrels from the gangs had murdered them for the sake of their money. The suspicion, however, was very soon dispelled. About three weeks after my arrival, I was roused one morning about daybreak and told that one of my jamadars, a fine, powerful Sikh named Ungan Singh, had been seized in his tent during the night and dragged off and eaten. Naturally, I lost no time in making an examination of the place and was soon convinced that the man had indeed been carried off by a lion, and its pug marks were plainly visible in the sand, while the furrows made by the heels of the victim showed the direction in which he had been dragged away. Moreover, the Jemadar shared his tent with half a dozen other workmen, and one of his bedfellows had actually witnessed the occurrence. He graphically described how, at about midnight, the lion suddenly put its head in the open tent door and seized Ungun Singh, who happened to be nearest the opening by the throat. The unfortunate fellow cried out, Choro, let's go, and threw up his arms around the lion's neck. The next moment he was gone, and his panic-stricken companions lay helpless, forced to listen to the terrible struggle which took place outside. Poor Ungin Singh must have died hard, but what chance had he? As a coolie gravely remarked, was he not fighting with a lion? On hearing this dreadful story, I at once set out to try to track the animal, and was accompanied by Captain Haslam, who happened to be staying at Savo at the time, and who, poor fellow, himself, met with a tragic fate very shortly afterwards. We found it an easy manner to follow the route taken by the lion, as he appears to have stopped several times before beginning his meal. Pools of blood marked these halting places, where he doubtless indulged in the man-eater's habit of licking the skin off so as to get at the fresh blood. I have been led to believe that this is their custom from the appearance of two half-eaten bodies, which I subsequently rescued. The skin was gone in places, and the flesh looked dry, as if it had been sucked. On reaching the spot where the body had been devoured, a dreadful spectacle presented itself. The ground all around was covered with blood and morsels of flesh and bones, but the unfortunate, unfortunate Jemadar's head had been left intact, save for the holes made by the lion's tusks on seizing him, and lay a short distance away from the other remains, the eyes staring wide open with a startled, horrified look in them. 
The place was considerably cut up, and on closer examination, we found that two lions had, had been there and had probably struggled for possession of the body. It was the most gruesome sight I had ever seen. We collected the remains as well as we could and heaped stones on them, the head with its fixed, terrified stare seeming to watch us all the time. For, for it we did not bury, but took back to camp for identification before the medical ex officer. Thus occurred my first experience of man-eating lions, and I vowed there and then that I would spare no pains to rid the neighborhood of the brutes. I knew little of the tr I little knew the trouble that was in store for me, or how narrow were to be my own escapes from sharing poor Ungan Singh's fate. That same night I sat up in a tree close by the late Jemadar's tent, hoping that the lions would return to it for another victim. I was followed to my perch by a few of the more terrified coolies, who begged to be allowed to sit up in the tree with me. All the other workmen remained in their tents, but no more doors were left open. I had with me a .30-30 and a 12-bore shotgun, one barrel loaded with ball and the other with slug. Shortly after settling down to my vigil, my hopes of, bragging, of bagging one of the brutes were raised by the sound of their ominous roaring coming closer and closer. Presently this seized, and quiet reigned for an hour or two, as lions always stalked their prey in complete silence. All at once, however, we heard a great uproar and frenzied cries coming from another camp about a half a mile away. We knew then that the lions had seized a victim there, and that we should see or hear nothing further from them that night. Next morning I found that one of the brutes had broken into a tent at Railhead Camp, once we had heard the commotion during the night, and had made off with a poor wretch who was lying there asleep. After a night's rest, therefore, I took up my position in a suitable tree near this tent. I did not at all like the idea of walking, the half mile to the place after dark, but all the same I felt fairly safe as one of my men carried a bright lamp close behind me. He in his turn was followed by another leading a goat, which I tied under my tree in the hope that the lion might be tempted to seize it instead of a coolie. A steady drizzle commenced shortly after I had settled down to my night of watching, and I was soon thoroughly chilled and wet. I stuck to my uncomfortable post, however, hoping to get a shot, but I well remember the feeling of impotent disappointment I experienced when about midnight I heard screams and cries and a heart-rending shriek, which told me that the man-eaters had again eluded me and claimed another victim elsewhere. At this time, the various camps for the workmen were very scattered, so that the lions had a range of some eight miles on either side of Savo to work upon, and as their tactic seemed to be to break into a different camp each night, it was most difficult to forestall them. They almost appeared, too, to have an extraordinary and uncanny faculty of finding out our plans beforehand, so that no matter in how likely or how tempting a spot we lay in wait for them, they invariably avoided that particular place and seized their victim for the night from some other camp. Hunting them by day, moreover, in such a dense wilderness as surrounded us, was an exceedingly tiring and really foolhardy undertaking. In a thick jungle of the kind round Savo, the hunted animal has every chance against the hunter, as however careful the latter may be, a dead twig or something of the sort is sure to crackle just at the critical moment and give, and so give the alarm. Still, I never give up hope of someday finding their lair, and accordingly continue to devote all my spare time to crawling through the undergrowth. Many a time when attempting to force my way through this bewildering tangle, I had to be released by my gun bearer from the fast clutches of the weight a bit, and often with immense pains I succeeded in tracing the lions to the river after they had seized a victim, only to lose the trail from there onwards, owing to the rocky nature of the ground, which they seemed to be careful to choose in retreating to their den. 
At this early stage of the struggle, I'm glad to say the lions were not always successful in their efforts to capture a human being for their nightly meal, and one or two amusing incidents occurred to relieve the tension from which our nerves were beginning to suffer. On one occasion, an enterprising Banaya Indian trader was riding along his donkey late one night when suddenly a lion sprang out on him, knocking over both man and beast. The donkey was badly wounded, and the lion was just about to seize the trader when in some way or another his claws became entangled in a rope by which two empty oil tins were strung across the donkey's neck. The rattle and clatter of these, made by these as he dragged them after him, gave him such a fright that he turned tail and bolted off into the jungle, to the intense relief of the terrified Benaya, who quickly made his way up the nearest tree and remained there shivering with fear for the rest of the night. Shortly after this episode, a Greek contractor named Themistocles Papa Dimitrini had an equally marvelous escape. He was sleeping peacefully in his tent one night when a lion broke in and seized and made off with the mattress on which he was lying. Though rudely awakened, the Greek was quite unhurt and suffered from nothing worse than a bad fright. This same man, however, met with a melancholy fate not long afterwards. He had been to the Kilimanjaro district to buy cattle, and on the return journey attempted to take a shortcut across country to the railway, but perished miserably of thirst on the way. On another occasion, fourteen coolies who slept together in a large tent were one night awakened by a lion suddenly jumping onto the tent and breaking through it. The brute landed with one claw on a coolie's shoulder, which was badly torn. But instead of seizing the man himself, in his hurry he grabbed a large bag of rice, which happened to be lying in the tent, and made off with it, dropping it in disgust some little distance away when he realized his mistake. These, however, were only the earlier efforts of the man-eaters. Later on, as will be seen, nothing flurried or frightened them in the least, and except as food they showed a complete contempt for human beings. Having once marked down a victim, they would allow nothing to deter them from securing him, whether he were protected by a thick fence, or inside a closed tent, or sitting around a brightly burning fire. Shots, shouting, and firebrands they alike held in derision. Chapter 3. The Attack on the Goods Wagon All this time my own tent was pitched in an open clearing, unprotected by a fence of any kind round it. One night when the medical officer Dr. Rose was staying with me, we were awakened about midnight by hearing something tumbling about among the tent ropes, but on going out with a lantern we could discover nothing. Daylight, however, plainly revealed the pug marks of a lion, so that on that occasion I fancy one or other of us had a narrow escape. Warned by this experience, I at once arranged to move my quarters, and went to join forces with Dr. Brock, who had just arrived at Savo to take medical charge of the district. We shared a hut of palm leaves and boughs, which we had constructed on the eastern side of the river, close to the old caravan route leading to Uganda, and we had it surrounded by a circular boma or thorn fence, about 70 yards in diameter, well made and thick and high. Our personal servants also lived within the enclosure, and a bright fire was always kept up throughout the night. For the sake of coolness, Brock and I used to sit out under the veranda of this hut in the evenings, but it was rather trying to our nerves to attempt to read or write there, as we never knew when a line might spring over the boma and be on us before we were aware. We therefore kept our rifles within easy reach, and, and cast many an anxious glance out into the inky darkness beyond the circle of the firelight. On one or two occasions, we found in the morning that the lions had come quite close to the fence, but fortunately they never succeeded in getting through. By this time, too, the camps of the workmen had also been surrounded by thorn fences, 
Nevertheless, the Lions managed to jump over or break through some one or other of these, and regularly every few nights a man was carried off. The reports of the disappearance of this or that workman coming into me with painful frequency. So long, however, as Railhead Camp, with its two or three thousand men scattered over a wide area, remained at Savo, the coolies appeared not to take much notice of the dreadful deaths of their comrades. Each man felt, I suppose, that as the man-eaters had such a large number of victims to choose from, the chances of their selecting him in particular were very small. But when the large camp moved ahead with the railway, matters altered considerably. I was then left with only some few hundred men to complete the permanent works, and as all the remaining workmen were naturally camped together, the attentions of the lions became more apparent and made a deeper impression. A regular panic consequently ensued, and it required all my powers of persuasion to induce the men to stay on. In fact, I succeeded in doing so only by allowing them to knock off all regular work until they had built exceptionally thick and high bomas round each camp. Within these enclosures, fires were kept burning all night, and it was also the duty of the night watchmen to keep clattering half a dozen empty oil tins suspended from a convenient tree. These he manipulated by means of a long rope while sitting in safety within his tent, and the frightful noise thus produced was kept up at frequent intervals throughout the night in the hopes of terrifying away the man-eaters. In spite of all these precautions, however, the lions would not be denied, and men continued to disappear. When the railhead workmen moved on, their hospital camp was left behind. It stood rather apart from the other camps in a clearing about three-quarters of a mile from my hut, but was pr protected by a good thick fence and to all appearance was quite secure. It seemed, however, as if barriers were of no avail against the demons, for before very long one of them found a weak spot in the boma and broke through. On this occasion, the hospital assistant had a marvelous escape. Hearing a noise outside, he opened the door of his tent and was horrified to see a great lion standing a few yards away looking at him. The beast, the beast made a spring towards him, which gave the assistant such a fright that he jumped backwards, and in doing so, luckily upset a box containing medical stores. This crash down with such a loud clatter of, break, of breaking glass that the lion was startled for the moment and made off to another part of the enclosure. Here, unfortunately, he was more successful as he jumped onto and broke through a tent in which eight patients were lying. Two of them were badly wounded by his spring, while a third poor wretch was seized and dragged off bodily through the thorn fence. The two wounded coolies were left where they lay, a piece of torn tent having fallen over them, and in this position the doctor and I found them on our arrival soon after dawn next morning. We at once decided to move the hospital closer to the main camp, a fresh shite was prepared, a stout hedge built round the enclosure, and all the patients were moved in before nightfall. As I had heard that lions generally visit recently deserted camps, I decided to sit up all night in the vacated boma in the hope of getting an opportunity of bagging one of them. But in the middle of my lonely vigil, I had the mortification of hearing shrieks and cries coming from the direction of the new hospital, telling me only too plainly that our dreaded foes had once more eluded me. Hurrying to the place at daylight, I found that one of the lions had jumped over the newly erected fence and had carried off the hospital beastie, or water carrier, and that several other coolies had been unwilling witnesses of the terrible scene, which took place within the circle of light given by the big camp fire. The beastie, it appears, had been lying on the floor with his head towards the center of the tent and his feet nearly touching the side. The lion managed to get its head in below the canvas, seized him by the foot, and pulled him out. In desperation, the unfortunate water carrier clutched hold of a heavy box in a vain attempt to prevent himself being carried off, 
and dragged it with him until he was forced to let go by its being stopped by the side of the tent. He then caught hold of a tent rope and clung tightly to it until it broke. As soon as the lion managed to get him clear of the tent, he sprang at his throat, and after a few vicious shakes, the poor beastie's agonizing cries were silenced forever. The brute then seized him in his mouth like a huge cat with a mouse and ran up and down the boma looking for a weak spot to break through. This he presently found and plunged into, dragging his victim with him and leaving shreds of torn cloth and flesh as ghastly evidences of his passage through the thorns. Dr. Brock and I were easily able to follow his track and soon found the remains about 400 yards away in the bush. There was the usual horrible sight. Very little was left of the unfortunate beastie, only the skull, jaws, a few of the larger bones, and a portion of the palm with one or two fingers attached. On one of those was a silver ring, and this, with the teeth, a relic much prized by certain castes, was sent to the man's widow in India. Again it was decided to move the hospital, and again before nightfall the work was completed, including a still stronger and thicker boma. When the patients had been moved, I had a covered goods wagon placed in a favorable position on a siding, which ran close to the site which had just been abandoned, and in this Brock and I arranged to sit up that night. We left a couple of tents still standing within the enclosure, and also tied up a few cattle in it as bait for the lions, who had been seen no, in no less than three different places in the neighborhood during the afternoon of April 23rd. Four miles from Savo, they had attempted to seize a coolie who was walking along the line. Fortunately, however, he had just time to escape up a tree where he remained, more dead than alive, until he was rescued by the traffic manager, who caught sight of him from a passing train. They next appeared close to Tsavo Station, and a couple of hours later, some workmen saw one of the lions stalking Dr. Brock as he was returning about dusk from the hospital. In accordance with our plan, the doctor and I set out after dinner for the goods wagon, which was about a mile away from our hut. In the light of subsequent events, we did a very foolish thing in taking up our position so late. Nevertheless, we reached our destination in safety and settled down to our watch about 10 o'clock. We had the lower half of the door of the wagon closed, while the upper half was left wide open for observation, and we faced, of course, in the direction of the abandoned boma, which, however, we were unable to see in the inky darkness. For an hour or two, everything was quiet, and the deadly silence was becoming very monotonous and oppressive, when suddenly, to our right, a dry twig snapped, and we knew that an animal of some sort was about. Soon afterwards, we heard the, a dull thud, as if some heavy body had jumped over the boma. The cattle, too, became very uneasy, and we could hear them moving about restlessly. Then again came dead silence. At this juncture, I proposed to my companion that I should get out of the wagon and lie on the ground close to it, as I could see better in that position should the lion come in our direction with his prey. Brock, however, persuaded me to remain where I was, and a few seconds afterwards I was heartily glad I had taken his advice, for at that very moment one of the man-eaters, although we did not know it, was quietly stalking us, and was even then almost within springing distance. Orders had been given for the entrance of, to the boma to be blocked up, and accordingly we were listening in the expectation of hearing the lion force his way out through the bushes with his prey. As a matter of fact, however, the doorway had not been properly closed, and while we were wondering what the lion could be doing inside the boma for so long, he was outside all the time, silently reconnoitering our position. Presently, I fancied I saw something coming very stealthily towards us. I feared, however, to trust my eyes, which by that time were strained by prolonged staring through the darkness. So under my breath, I asked Brock 
whether he saw anything, at the same time covering the dark object as well as I could with my rifle. Brock did not answer. He told me afterwards that he, too, thought he had see, seen something move, but was afraid to say so, lest I should fire, and it turned out to be nothing at all. After this, there was intense silence again for a second or two, and then with a sudden bound, a huge body sprang at us. The lion, I shouted, and we both fired almost simultaneously, not a moment too soon, for in another second the brute would assuredly have landed inside the wagon. As it was, he must have swerved off in his spring, probably blinded by the flash and frightened by the noise of the double report, which was increased a hundredfold by the reverberation of the hollow iron roof of the truck. Had we not been very much on the alert, he undoubtedly would have got one of us, and we realized that we had been very lucky we had a very lucky and a very narrow escape. The next morning we found Brock's bullet embedded in the sand close to a footprint. It could not have missed the lion by more than an inch or two. Mine was nowhere to be found. Thus ended my first direct encounter with one of the man-eaters. <laughs>